So today's story is in Mark 9. It's one that is extremely unique and, to be honest, may make you scratch your head a little bit. Uh, Don't get me wrong, great story, glad we have it. But after reading it, perhaps like me, you, you think sometimes after you read a story, what am I supposed to do with this story? What, what information did God want me to have? And so as we look at the transfiguration of Jesus today, you know, maybe you're new to church and, and you don't know what even that word means. Don't worry, I will explain it. But in essence, today you see Jesus glorified momentarily before his death. Sometimes in life, as you're working toward a goal, uh, it's easy to get wearied on the journey and lose sight of the finish line. I know that can be true in education. I know a lot of kids, especially when you're uh, in elementary school, middle school, you're a preteen, that high school graduation just seems so far away. And uh, I know when I was a kid, I looked at people my age and thought, now that's an old person, you know, and just uh, time just stretches in, in strange ways. Um, maybe in your line of work, you're training for something and you almost can forget when you do so much training what it actually is that you're training for. Um, I know one of our young men, Mark, is training as a parajumper. Where are you at, Mark? Where are you? There, he, there he is. I see you. And uh, that's a pretty awesome profession in the military. Uh, but right now, according to Mark, it's a lot of training, a lot of weightlifting, a lot of swim practice, lots of medical training, lots of practice on the range. I'm sure there are days when Mark fires a couple of, of uh, shots downrange, he swims a few laps, he reads up on wound care, and puts his head on the pillow at night thinking, what am I doing? What, when do I get to get a little, a little taste of the glory? But imagine if in those moments you could just push a button called the little taste of the glory button. You know, there's the staples had the easy button, right? Imagine if there was little taste of the glory button. And and wherever you are, when you push that button, a screen appears and shows you a picture of your future, all culminating to the thing that you're working for. Imagine Mark pushes that button and instantly he sees himself in a helicopter over enemy territory and he repels down the line and takes off in a sprint to retrieve a fallen soldier behind enemy lines. He fights off three enemies and he sees the target lying on the ground. He applies emergency medical care to them, hoists them on his shoulder, sprints back through the fire and runs, repels back up the line and goes to the pickup point and they take him away and he is an American hero. And we say, I knew Captain America, personally. Wouldn't it be nice in those moments when it's just training and preparation and grind to experience a little taste of future glory? Wouldn't it help you in the low moments to see what all the training is for? Wouldn't it help you when things get tough to remember backwards that moment to sustain you? Though the Christian experience is that we are to live by faith and not by sight. There are moments when God grants us glimpses of future glory to come. Today we will see that Jesus granted his struggling disciples with a taste of his full divine glory, as well as a powerful testimony of three witnesses to confirm the ministry of Jesus. For a moment in time, the veil is pulled back and the disciples get a taste, a preview of coming attractions. And all this, it seems, is to give the disciples an experience that they will be able to cling to when times get tough later. 
Jesus' disciples needed the mountaintop experience to sustain them in the valley that would be coming. So before we study Mark 9 together, let's pray God's blessing over this moment. Lord, we do seek your divine counsel and will as we study your text today, Lord. Uh, Father, that you would make it come alive to us, that you would help apply it to us, that your Holy Spirit would apply this text far beyond what I've prepared. Um, But Lord, that we would rally around your word today and worship you because of it. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you haven't, to Mark 9. That's where we'll be, Mark 9. The context of last week is, is fairly important to today. Mark 8, when we talked last week, we concluded that walking, talking session with Jesus and his disciples, and they asked, uh, well, rather, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter correctly replied, what? You are the Christ, right? Correct. After this, uh, Jesus gets more candid, plain spoken about his death, the suffering that he was going to go through on the cross. And this marks a shift in the gospel of Mark. Peter, not happy about this, uh, and we assume other disciples probably felt the same way, rebukes Jesus for saying this, that he's going to suffer and die. And then Jesus counter-rebukes Peter, calls him Satan, and says, you're setting your mind on the things of man rather than the things of God. So Jesus doubles down on his teaching and continues, goes into a lesson on the necessity of his followers denying themselves, taking up their cross, losing their lives, being unashamed of him when the pressure comes. And one would imagine that after this, the disciples who had seen basically all awesome things up till this point, incredible miracles, were in confusion and shock. All of their messianic hopes suddenly were shifted. Their worldview, their Old Testament understanding of the Messiah crumbled in a matter of a few minutes. And so it's with that that we begin this text today in Mark 9, 2. I'd invite you to read with me. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And clothes, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. You know, after I read a story in the Gospels, I often ask myself, why is this here? I think that's a good, a good Bible study technique to ask, why is this here? Other than the fact that it happened, why is this here? And in that, I see a miracle performed not for the benefit of a large crowd, no, but for a small group of disciples. I believe this was done for their personal assurance. You know, Jesus didn't have to bring them up on this mountain. We know Jesus prayed privately, often by himself on mountains. And yet Peter, James, and John were able to see the transfiguration of Christ, something they would never forget. 
And so I have three points I want to make to you today. The first two come from this passage on the mountain. The third comes from the following passage at the bottom of the mountain. So first, we see, number one, that Jesus was reinforced by the law and the prophets. Jesus was reinforced by the law and the prophets. Now, verse 2 says this took place six days after the previous conversation where we left off. Uh, We know at the time they were heading northward to Caesarea Philippi, and it's possible in six days they returned back to Galilee. Uh, If they did that, then this would have been, the highest mountain would have been Mount Tabor at about 2,000 feet above sea level. In Colorado, we giggle at that and say that's that's a hill, but you know, I understand how it is. If, however, they continued to their northward travel past Caesarea Philippi, then the mountain would have been Mount Hermon at over 9,000 feet. Now, that's a mountain, okay? Uh, We don't know which one it is, but for you history people that just, that would have bothered you all day, it's one of the two. So, Jesus takes his inner circle of Peter, James, and John up to the mountain. Now, don't you just know the other nine disciples were talking smack at the bottom the whole time about why they did not get to go up to the top. Peter, Peter, Peter. Guy gets called Satan, and then Jesus takes him up the mountain, you know. Now, the word transfigured, this is obviously the key of the whole passage, transfigured. It's kind of a mysterious word. There's not a lot of comparisons to it in the Bible. The only other time we really see it used like that is when Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's the same Greek word, which is metamorphote, which sounds like something, doesn't it? Metamorphosis sounds just like it because that's what it is. It's the same root word. It means to be changed or to transform. So something happens in this moment to the form and appearance of Jesus on the mountain. Verse 3 gives more details. His clothing became radiant. His clothes were shining with a white brightness. Now, we know Jesus would not have already been wearing white clothes, Okay? It just wasn't a common thing to do unless you were going to a party or you had crazy money. You couldn't just keep white clothes all the time. It was a big deal. So it's likely that Jesus was wearing the common beige, tan, brown, gray, burlap-colored clothes that the lower middle class would wear. Especially traveling, they would not have worn white clothes. And these clothes, these brown, tan, beige clothes turn white and they begin to shine brightly. The end of verse 3, I love this phrase. Only Mark says this phrase, like no launderer on the earth could bleach them. Mark wants you to know Jesus didn't just slip out to the river with, with his Clorox or he didn't grab a Tide Pod from his pocket. He didn't meet Billy Mays behind the tree. Billy Mays here, you know, got some OxyClean for you and poured it on real quick, scrubbed up. All right, now I'm now white clothes. No, that did not happen. It's strange, yes, that Jesus began to shine on the mountain. But verse 4 says that the plot thickens. Two Old Testament characters appear on the mountain. Who are they? Moses and Elijah. And they are talking with Jesus. Now, neither Mark nor Matthew's gospel tell us what they're talking about. Luke does. Luke's gospel adds one phrase that slips into the conversation. Luke 9.31, he says, They appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. In other words, Moses and Elijah are meeting to talk with Jesus about his impending death on the cross. 
Isn't it interesting that this is the exact conversation in Mark 8 that shook up the disciples so much? The discussion about Jesus' death is the reason why Peter and Jesus got into a rebuke battle. Here, here we are on the mountain with Peter within earshot and two absolute heroes of the faith reinforcing Jesus' message that he is going to die in Jerusalem. So why these two men? Why Moses? Why Elijah? Well, the quick answer is probably that there is a consistent theme of the Old Testament that a claim is supported by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And here we have two star witnesses. Moses is the representative of the law. Elijah, the representative of all the prophets. If you wanted to briefly and succinctly say that the law and prophets testify to Jesus, the two characters you would want to pick are Moses and Elijah, the perfect figureheads to do that. But even beyond this, there might be some additional parallels to consider. When we think about Moses, we know that he was known for a mountain of his own, was he not? He personally met with God and received the law on Mount Sinai. Not only this, he himself had an experience with a shining face when he was in the presence of the Lord, and he returned to the bottom of the mountain. Elijah had his own mountain experience. His name will forever be linked with Mount Carmel. And though the presence of God did not meet with him in the same way, there wasn't the shiny face, there was a powerful testimony of fire that fell from heaven to consume the altar. So for a Jewish worshiper of God, the only other two men that would even possibly be on this Mount Rushmore of, of heroes would be maybe Abraham and David. Other than that, God saw it fit to provide Moses and Elijah to reinforce and minister to Jesus and the disciples with this show of support. Now, you didn't think we're going to get out of this story without a, a Peter moment, did you? No, of course not. In verse 5, Peter says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. You are in luck, pal, because I am here. Now, I don't know if he said it like that, but he says, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, maybe it's interesting that word tent is the word for tabernacle. Some scholars have tied this to, to the Feast of Tabernacles, which was perhaps happening at this time. That may be true. I don't know that. What we do know for sure is that Peter was a man caught in the moment. He was thinking, what if we just stayed up here and, and camped and never left this mountain? This is it. I'm good here. I could just soak in this moment forever. What more could I need? And you know, isn't that always the challenge with great worship or maybe a, a great service, a, a great sermon, <clears throat> or a conference, a Christian conference for youth, a camp, a youth camp that you go to? You know, there are times when we just want to soak that thing that we're in forever. I mean, how many youth, if you caught them on the last night of youth camp and said, hey, look, all the church decided if you just want to live here, you know, We'll, we'll pay for you to just do every week at camp, and you'll never have to come back home. Some would take that deal, wouldn't they? Because you just love that experience of being just in the presence of, of God and other Christians and worshiping him. That's all Peter wanted to do. Forget this world, leave it behind, worship in the presence of the Lord. But again, 
different way of making the same mistake. This was not the plan. Jesus had been very clear. He has a date with the cross. Just as it is true today, it was true then. There must come a time when we leave the mountain and go back to the grind. We are reminded that our heavenly rest and the perpetual presence and worship of the Lord comes after our death, after we pass into glory. But for now, we are to adorn our armor and go into all the world for Jesus' sake. Although Peter wasn't quite sure how to act in the moment, nevertheless, this experience had a powerful impact on him. He wrote something about this years later. He penned it in 2 Peter 1.16, which I'll read to you now. Peter wrote 30 years later, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter, some 30 years later, is still pointing back to this moment that he was an eyewitness of majesty and he heard a specific voice to affirm Jesus Christ. And what was that voice? Well, we have seen Jesus reinforced by the law and prophets through Moses and Elijah. Now we see, secondly, number two, he was reaffirmed by the Father. Reaffirmed by the Father. We're going to look at verses 7 through 8 again, just to refresh. It says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So why do I say this is a a reaffirmation rather than an affirmation? Well, because this audible voice of God was heard once before in the gospel. You remember where? At the baptism. Very good. Mark chapter 1, at the baptism of Jesus, he said, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This was the statement that inaugurated the ministry of Jesus. Here in the middle of Jesus' ministry, the transition starts to go toward death. We're downhill toward Jerusalem at this point. The different focus of the statement is not with whom I am well pleased, but rather listen to him. So the scene is this. We have Jesus in gleaming white. We have Moses and Elijah speaking with him about his death. The disciples are quivering. Peter shouts out, I'll make you a tent if you want. And then a show-stopping moment happens. God the Father shows up. Now, of course, we believe that God the Father, the first member of the Trinity, is omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times. And so when we say he shows up, we know there's a little something even to that phrase. Because you can't escape him. You can't run from him. You can't hide from him. He's on the rings of Saturn. He's in the bottom of the Marianas Trench. He's in North Korea. He's pouring out blessings in heaven. He's pouring out wrath in hell. He's upholding and sustaining the universe's natural law. And he's here with us in this place today. However, there are times when God 
tangibly, visibly, and powerfully shows up. And we know from Scripture that even then, when Yahweh God shows up, he must carefully restrain the fullness of himself, and man must be prepared because there is a significant chance you might die. Moses begged God in Exodus 33, God, show me your glory. He's basically begging, please, give me something. And God says, you can't handle my glory, but I will cover you in a rock. I will give you a portion of a portion as I pass by, and I'll cover your face. But you still can't stare into the face of God. No one can do that and live. 1 Kings 8, 2 Chronicles 7, we hear the story of when Solomon prayed the dedication prayer for the temple of God. And after he prayed, fire consumed the altar, and the glory of the Lord filled the newly built temple. A thick smoke and brightness would often descend in the Holy of Holies to the mercy seat where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, and they called this the Shekinah glory of God. This is what Isaiah saw in chapter 6 when he saw the glory of God whose robe filled the temple with seraphim flying about, and the thresholds of the building shook and smoke filled the room, leaving him to utter those words, woe is me. In this moment of the transfiguration, the Father determines to reveal himself by means of an enveloping cloud, which overcame everyone in this story. And then an audible voice comes from the cloud. This is my beloved son. That word has its root in the word agape, my agape son. And then a present active imperative, that means a command, listen, listen to him. Now look, it doesn't matter how old you get, the phrase listen to him can hit you at any time in your life, can't it? Are you listening to Jesus? Is that the most important adjustment that you need to make to your life today? That you finally start listening to Jesus? In this case, in this context, it's very likely that this encouragement to listen was because they were not listening regarding his death. He told them what was going to happen. He told them what the Messiah would do, and they continued saying, I don't like that version I don't want the death version. We talked about this last week, right? I want the Messiah who does the miracles. I want the Messiah who has the big crowds. I want the Messiah who's going to take back Israel and get Rome off our backs. I don't want the version of the Messiah where you go to the cross and you suffer and you die. And then you tell me, I got to follow you in that. Think about how serious it is that God would come down to correct that line of thinking. God came down to encourage them, to teach them that everything Jesus had been saying was absolutely true. Listen to him. Whatever you've heard Jesus say, take it to the bank more than anything you've ever taken to the bank. This is for real. God desired the shaken faith of the disciples to be corrected he descended personally and challenged them to listen to Jesus. Verse 8 tells us the cloud disappears. And when it disappears, Moses and Elijah are gone. And it is just Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And just like that, it was over. 
the heavenly experience was over. The glory of Jesus would be reconcealed for a time. The next time even any measure of glory would be seen, perhaps we could say the resurrected body of Jesus, perhaps we could say the ascension of Jesus, but just so you know, really nothing will compare to the return of Jesus. That will be the complete tear-the-curtain-off global show-stopping event where the fullness of the glory of Christ will be revealed. There will be no more waiting. There will be no more concealment on that day. The brightness of the radiance of Christ will shine so brightly. Revelation 22 says, There will be no need of light, of lamp, or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. These struggling disciples had their faith reinforced by the law and prophets, and they saw Jesus affirmed by the Father. They heard his voice. And lastly, we're going to see they descend from the mountain. And number three, they were reminded of enduring struggle. They were reminded of enduring struggle. You know, I, I considered whether or not to include this part. We could have just studied the transfiguration. Now drill down a little bit more on the mountain. But I think when you add this extra part, it's really more beneficial to us in our hearts to help bring this message to life. Now, it's a long story that follows. I, I just can't, we can't re-preach another sermon. This is like, uh, you know, 20 verses. So I want to tell you what happens here, which I don't normally do. But Mark 9, 14 through 29 is the following story. Jesus and the three disciples come down from the mountain. They walk down, and as soon as they get to the bottom, they see the other disciples. So the three and the nine get back together. And what do they do? Do they start telling this awesome story? Oh, man, you should have seen it. Moses and Elijah were up there. We heard God's voice. You should have been there. No, none of that happens. Why? Because when they get to the bottom, they find the nine disciples who didn't go up locked in a heated debate with the scribes. Scribes found uh, Jesus' disciples, and they're debating them while Jesus was away. Perhaps they thought this was easy pickings for them. And so there's this crowd that's starting to form. You know, the picture kind of sounds like the scribes were handing it to them, and Jesus' disciples were really struggling here to keep up. The crowd seems like they, they're happy Jesus is there. They start to flock to him when they come to the bottom. And the man from the crowd pops out of the crowd, not interested in the debate. This man is holding a demon-possessed boy, and he brings it to Jesus. And it's just an awful story. This is one of the worst ones. Verse 20 says there are convulsions. He's flopping on the ground, foaming at the mouth. The demon has thrown the boy throughout his life into fire and into water to drown him. It's just a shocking case. And so this is brought, after this mountaintop experience, this is brought to Jesus where there's a fight going on over here, a theological debate, and then there's a man holding a, a boy who's just foaming at the mouth with demon possession. And to complicate things, Verse 18 tells us that the disciples tried to cast this demon out while Jesus was gone, and they could not. They failed. Likely, this happened all in front of the crowd, especially those scribes who were making fun of him anyway. So imagine being one of those nine disciples in this moment. Jesus is gone, okay? So you're already a little uncomfortable because the master's gone. And 
your top three guys are gone. Peter, who maybe could handle some things, was gone. James was gone. John was gone. A crowd recognizes you. They say, oh, I'm glad you're here. You're one of Jesus' disciples. And they bring you this boy who's just completely possessed by a demon. And you try to help, and you just can't. You just, you've tried everything. In the name of Jesus, come out. You know, and you, you're doing everything you know how to do. You, know, you, don't, you, know, you don't even know what to do. You're trying everything, and just nothing happens. And the crowd starts to form, and you fail, and you fail, and you fail. It's just not like when Jesus does it. And the scribes start laughing, and they start picking, and the crowd grows. This scene is what Jesus returned to after the transfiguration. Chaos, confusion, failure, a faith crisis, debate, demonic activity. In fact, verse 19, Jesus exclaims, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? Jesus is weary from just a few minutes of this scene. Just moments after the most powerful spiritual high imaginable. Now, for the record, Jesus does cast out this demon. We're not going to cover that, but I wanted you to know he got it done. But the contrast with the two stories really struck me this week. What is this? It's a reminder that life is not primarily the mountaintop. Listen, young people, I love you. There's more valley than mountain in life, even for Christians. Not every day is a Sabbath rest. In fact, that's why there's six days of work and one day of rest. In God's calendar, there is more faithlessness and pain and struggle on this side. And just as Jesus returned from the mountain of glory to struggle at the bottom, so did our two witnesses who were on the mountain. You know, when Moses came down from his mountaintop experience, he had just gotten the Ten Commandments given to him, drawn by the finger of God, ready to start this nation off. And what does he find at the bottom? They're dancing around a golden calf. The people were worshiping an idol while he was gone. What about Elijah? When he experienced the fire of God consuming the altar of Carmel, then he orders the slaughter of all the prophets of Baal, and then he goes to the edge of the mountain, and he prays for rain, and a three-year drought ends. Boom, rain falls. And then he gets to the bottom. And word on the street is Jezebel has a hit out for him. And he goes afraid and hides in a cave where God has to minister to him with a still small voice. Why does this happen? It's because the fullness of the glory is not here. We live in a fallen world where sin and rebellion and faithlessness are rampant. We do not live lives of constant glory on the mountaintop. This life is a battle. It is a grind. It is uphill. And furthermore, God's mode of operation tends to be to give you just enough mountaintop 
to sustain you through the valley. But it is going to require your persistent faith in clinging to him when the memory of the mountaintop gets foggy in your mind. Jesus revealed a powerful picture to these three disciples, a taste of the glory, because they would need it when, guess what, things weren't getting easier after this. Jesus would leave them, he would ascend into heaven, and they would be launched into an era of persecution. And they would need that mountaintop in the back of their mind, a reminder of who God was when times got difficult. And so maybe a good question to ask is, do you need assurance today? Do you need a reminder of who God is to sustain you through what you're walking through? Do you need a boost to your faith? Are you in a slump? Has it been a long time since you tasted even something remotely like the glory of God? Perhaps today, perhaps this text, perhaps in a moment of prayer, God will minister to you. He will strengthen your faith so that you will be sustained as we leave this place today. Because every Sunday, you know this, we step off the mountain. When we pass that little sign as we exit, we go to the mission field and we go back into the real world. And it's in those moments that this, God's word, his power, his people must sustain us through those days to follow. So if you need a faith boost today, let's ask for that right now. Pray with me.